Hey everyone, it's Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm Chip Pope, and uh, I, like, I like applesauce. Do you like applesauce? <laughs> it's underrated. Chip had a bit of a, uh, a health I- issue. What? Do we have to talk about that? Yeah, we do, because we, we love you, Chip, and how uh-huh. is your eye? It's uh, healing up again. To I what? had a detached retina, <laughs> which, you know, just look it up. Uh, look up what happened to Savannah Guthrie. Same thing. It's the weirdest thing. I don't know how somehow I found out about Savannah Guthrie. Not on my radar. She's like the Today Show host. She had a detached retina? Yeah, like her three-year-old threw a train in her eye, which, come on, <laughs> break up with that kid. Well, I won't ask who threw a train in your eye. Yeah, no one threw a train in my eye or anything. But you look okay. Thank you. Can you see me? Yeah, uh, if with my good eye. <laughs> Luckily, we're in an audio-based platform <laughs> yeah. here. So you we can know. only see his weird deformed <laughs> eye hanging out of his face. <laughs> All right. So you might have remembered our premiere. We had an incredible auteur legend. William uh, Friedkin. William Friedkin. It was, that was amazing. quite the auspicious way to kick off this series. And today we are trying to match it with an auteur of similar legendary status. It's pretty crazy. One of your first superstar directors, like before Quentin Tarantino, there was this guy. Yeah. So we won't tell you who because we love keeping you in suspense, but we'll tell you right after the theme song on It Happened in Hollywood. I don't know why we go through this charade every time because you know who the guest is already. <laughs> you clicked on yeah, it. Yeah, but uh, but it's but still it's good fun. to have a teaser. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to tease. So um, Peter Bogdanovich said wow. yes. That's uh, crazy because he's one of my definitely one of my top five favorite directors of all time. Yeah, Chip was trembling with awe at his mere presence, and um, he brought a lot of his uh, Peter Bogdanovich-related memorabilia for him to sign. And I apologize to, about that if Mr. Bogdanovich is listening, because he's probably just like, well, who's this? What's this weird thing I've got? I did go overboard with the uh, <laughs> DVD covers for him to sign, but I just, I can't, oh my gosh, the guy's just been my favorite. Yeah, I think so he was actually ago. touched, and you know... I wonder if millennials and and uh, Gen Z, I, they, it, he probably means nothing to them. But it's, but our yeah. Gen, he was a big deal, right? And not only to us, but but you know he's like a bridge from old Hollywood to seventies classic Hollywood to today because you know say Noah Baumbach, Wes Anderson, people like that that still do uh, art auteur type stuff. Sure, your marriage story. Exactly. There's a direct link from uh, Peter Bogdanovich. So it's crazy when you talk to him. It's like you're talking to 70 years of Hollywood history. It's really insane. And more than that, because he was a chronicler of Hollywood history himself. Right. He started out much like our own Seth as a journalist. (laughs) Not quite. Interviewing John Ford and Orson Welles. Yeah, he was uh, he got his first big gig, I think, with Esquire. Right. And he started uh, profiling uh, major directors, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, who else? John Ford, Orson Welles. Oh, yeah, those two. <laughs> and Orson Welles was um, even his roommate at one point. But we're getting ahead of ourselves once again. This episode, we're going to focus on 
maybe his most awarded uh, film? Yes, second feature, The Last Picture Show. Last Picture uh, Show. Sybil Shepard, Jeff Bridges, Horace Leachman. If you haven't seen it, press pause right now on the podcast. Get thee to the nearest device playing this movie and just watch it. Yeah, I was looking up where it is. It's on YouTube. It's on Amazon, Voodoo, Crackle. Any Crackle fans out there? It's on <laughs> Crackle. It's free on Crackle. But, uh, you know, we've talked with a lot of important people from Hollywood and everything on this podcast. But this is the only interview that I've ever been nervous to talk to someone. Mm-hmm. Because these movies that he made in the early 70s were just such a, a seminal part of my childhood. And so when we met him, it was just like, All right, let's get Mr. Bogdanovich in here already. As we hinted before, he had this uh, history of, of sort of uh, befriending and then interviewing uh, some of the greatest directors of all time. At one point, Orson Welles was actually living with him in his Bel Air estate. He had his own wing. Oh, my gosh. And uh, he, he tells a great story. And we thought we would just uh, tease our way into things with this amazing recollection of the wonderful Orson Welles living with Peter Bogdanovich. He was there for a while, I mean, in and out. He'd come for a week or two or a month, and then he'd leave and come back. It was fun. The funniest moment was we gave him a sort of a wing. I had a pretty big house in, in Bel Air at that time, and we gave him a sort of an area where he could... He had a bedroom and a bathroom and a, his own bathroom, a big table that he could, he could write and so on. And uh, Sybil Shepherd and I were living together, and she was walking down the hall, and she um, smelled something burning. So she yells out to Orson, Orson, you all right? I smell something burning. And he says, yes, just a little privacy, please. <laughs> and she said, well, I smell something burning. No, it's all right. Just a little privacy, please. So she said, all right, we'll come with it. Then she left, and Orson left for, for the day. And the housekeeper, my housekeeper, says, I think Mr. Wales had an accident. I said, what happened? And she holds up his white terry cloth robe, and there's a big burn hole in the middle of it. <laughs> and it turns out what had happened is he put his cigar, it was still lit, he didn't realize that, and he put it in his pocket and it caught fire. Oh, my God. The, 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 the terry cloth robe caught fire. He took it off, threw it into the bathtub in the bathroom, but it, it was still burning and it burned some of the carpet. I'll replace the carpet. <laughs> he never did. Um, so that was that. And the next day, he gave Sybil a, a book, a very beautifully printed and done book of, about opera. Sybil's crazy about opera. So uh, she, he gave this book, and it was color pictures. And, and he'd drawn inside, he drew a, a picture of a house burning and a ladybug in the foreground and said, ladybug, ladybug, fly away home. Your house is on fire, and so is your house guest. <laughs> Love Orson. <laughs> and that was that. It was fun. He was fun. So Orson Welles is living in his house, you know, but before that, he's just this young guy directing people who would become legends. So he started as a theater director, and is talking about a guy like in his early 20s, and he's getting the training that would lead up to directing something like The Last Picture Show. And uh, he told us a great story about directing Carol O'Connor in a play. Yeah, and the crazy thing about that story was I didn't know Carol O'Connor's like really Irish. Like he's from Ireland. I didn't either. So, uh, and he had he was like fresh off the boat from Ireland, and he cast him in this 
little production in New York in like 1960. But it makes sense with the name Carol O'Connor. <laughs> you go, I know, yeah, but Archie, I guess that's Irish. Yeah. Archie Bunker with an Irish accent is hard to picture. But anyway, <laughs> right. it's another cigar story, so it's kind of fun. It's a, a bookend. Two cigar stories in yeah. a row here. But let's For the do price it. of one. Yes. I remember I had this moment with him because he kept talking with the cigar in his mouth, and I said, and I kept saying, Tell, don't do that because this dialogue is a very good dialogue, and I, I want to understand it. You talk with that sting in your mouth, I don't understand. So uh, about a week or two before we opened, I was giving notes on a run-through, and I said, looking down at my pad, I said, and Carol is still talking with the cigar in his mouth. And Carol erupted. There's not more things wrong with this production besides the fact that I talk with the cigar in my mouth. And I thought to myself, this is a crisis moment. I have to be very careful how I handle this. So I was looking down at the clipboard, and I said, yes, there are a number of things wrong with this production besides the fact that you speak with a cigar in your mouth. But that's one of the big things that bothers me. That I looked up at him and said, so don't do it anymore. And he didn't. <laughs> and years later, I guess it was, this was 1959, so this was some years later, we both were nominated for uh, Golden Globes, me for The Last Picture Show and he, him for... Um, on the family, and that's the first time we'd seen each other since. Since, the, and he got up and he he said, "There's a y- arrogant young director <laughs> <laughs> that gave me a chance," and so, on. and he he introduced he thanked me publicly. Wow, very sweet. Uh, anyway, and he still would always have that cigar in his mouth. For, yeah, he, uh, he did it with his family. Archie Bunker through the whole thing. <laughs> so two cigar stories, yes, but so good. Can't pass up those Freudian cigar stories. Old guys with cigars in their mouth. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But as he said, they were at the Golden Globes, the last picture show. You know, that's good enough to jump off into last picture show. Okay, so the quick rundown of how he broke into Hollywood was he was doing the theater. He started interviewing directors and writing for Esquire. Then he came out to Hollywood and, you know, he... He originally thought he wanted to be an actor, but he found he had a real knack for direction. And uh, a chance run-in with Roger Corman, the B-movie king, led to screenwriting opportunities for him. And he knocked them out of the ballpark. Then Roger let him be a second unit director, and then he let him direct a movie with Boris Karloff, and that became a cult hit. That was uh, called Targets, and it was an underground success, and then he was looking around for another project to do, and this is what happened. Three people in the course of about a month gave me a copy of the last picture show and said, you should make this. And oddly enough, I had been in a drugstore and seen it on the rack and looked at it and thought, that's a title of a, a title that I, sounds like something I ought to make. <laughs> and I looked at the back and it said, teenagers in Texas. And I thought, who gives a shit about that? <laughs> so I didn't buy it. And the three people gave me the goddamn book, including Sal Minio who said he'd always wanted to play the part, but he's too old now. He says, I think I, I might like it. He wanted to be sunny. Yeah. So I uh, thought, well, I mean, this is ridiculous. Everybody's telling me to make this picture. So I, I said to Polly, why don't you read this and see what you think of it? So she reads the novel, and she says, well, she says, it's a very good book. I don't know how you make it as a picture, but it's a very good book because it had a lot of sex. And, you know. Well, when she said, I don't know how you make it as a picture, I got intrigued. So I read it, finally. And... Uh, because I had a theory that you could make anything into a picture if you, if you know how to do it. And I 
I figured out how to do it. I thought, I'll just shoot the book. And that's what we did. So he mentioned uh, someone named Polly there, who was uh, Polly Platt, who was his wife at the time and his production designer. And she went on to be a key component in the career of Wes Anderson because she uh, worked with James L. Brooks and produced Bottle Rocket and stuff like that. So Wow, you are such a font of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I just know what I like. And he's such a Lothario. He had so many beautiful lovers and accomplished women in his life. Yes. What's like, it was it was like a Bob, it was that Bob Evans kind of time, you know, where it was just like <laughs> Ali McGraw on one arm and another lady I met the night before that I set up with an apartment in Beverly Hills on the other arm, and then I grew a third arm so I could have yet another lady on that back, the arm that grew out of my back. So well, I met in the grotto at the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> exactly, and then I had a well, I had a third leg, and uh, well, we you know. All right, all right. <laughs> but you get the point. The guy had uh, some kind of sex appeal. Talent does that. Now, you know, looking at him, you you might not initially think this is the right guy for the job. Because he's a New York intellectual? Yeah, coded word for Jew. <laughs> Seth, but, can, Seth can say that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's true. He was a, an intellectual Jewish guy, kind of out of the Woody Allen mode. But, uh, you know, he's not exactly the kind of guy you throw on a ranch in Texas and say, uh, make a cinema verite masterpiece. Well, I thought that because I was not a, it was a foreign land to me, foreign country in a way. I thought I might do an interesting job because it'd be fresh to me. And it was. Everything was fresh to me. Peanut patties. I never had a peanut patty. <laughs> uh, a lot of things in, in Texas that were, whoa, <laughs> just weird. I was trying to figure out who to cast for the Sam the Lion, the part Ben Johnson played. And Orson says, why don't you go down to Nashville and see some of those country singers, maybe you find somebody there. So I did go to Nashville and met a lot of them, Roy Acuff and several uh, of them. I didn't think any of them was quite right for the part. But I did sort of fall in love with the country music. I don't know, fall in love, but I got very interested in it. And so that's how the score came about, the, the, the soundtrack. There wasn't any score. Uh, in fact, I, I, I don't think All I of your movies are source music, right? Pretty much. I think there's one or two that I used some score. Usually the, the movie wasn't good enough, <laughs> so I had to score it. Um, we used a lot of non-professionals uh, in certain parts, you know, except for the big parts. I just got to know the area and got to know the accent and... Fritz Lang once said to me, I said, how do you work with looking for locations? The director should be able to go to a location and say, this, I understand this, I understand it. And you understand it immediately. If you don't understand it immediately, you're not a director. Or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> what a name dropper. Yeah, I mean, who can drop Fritz Lang, Orson Welles? If only we could have Fritz Lang on it. Oh my gosh. But, for a rebuttal? Uh, but having, you uh, know nothing of my work. <laughs> Having Peter do it is as close as we'll get, I think. So there you have it. He just immersed himself and um, did the old Fritz, and uh, suddenly he was eating peanut patties in uh, Texas. What is a peanut patty? It's a round red patty with peanuts all bumping up over it. So uh, look it up if you don't know what it is. 
Okay, so they shot in uh, what's known as Archer City, Texas. Which is near Wichita Falls. So there's a lot of towns in Texas where you got to gauge the city that's, you know, <laughs> like a 70,000 people city. <laughs> Archer City is probably like a 3,000, 4,000 population. Wow. Yeah, and that's where Larry McMurtry is from. Oh, no and kidding. So, yeah, and so the last picture show is set in Anarine, which is just kind of a fictionalized version of Archer City. Okay, so we went right to the source to shoot this thing. Yes. How did Archer City, the the citizens of Archer City, view McMurtry at that point? Because he, he wrote dirty books. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and Picture Show was a dirty book, they thought. And um, one of the funniest moments was, uh, in retrospect, there's a scene in the picture, a brief scene in the picture, where Sonny is in the classroom and he looks out the window and he sees a couple of dogs sniffing around each other. Well, to shoot that the dogs sniffing around each other from his point of view we had to be inside shooting out. And we had these huge <laughs> arc lights <laughs> pointing on these dogs, sort of screwing around, and, and they were fucking uh, a little bit. <laughs> and um, people driving by would see huge spotlights on these two dogs going at it. <laughs> they, were, they were horrified. What's he shooting? <laughs> How do you dog get dogs board. to bang? Too. How, do, how do you get well, the you dogs get it, to we, bang we, on One you? of them was in heat. The world was oh, okay. in heat. Yeah. <laughs> and he was jumping her all through it. We, we didn't use the humping. We just used the sniffing. <laughs> Who let the dogs out? <laughs> you know, it might be uh, helpful to fill people in on what the story is of the last picture show. It's basically sure. a Roman de Clef. Is that what it is? A coming of age story? It's about uh, teenagers in Texas in the 50s coming of age, and everybody's just kind of sleeping with each other, and it's Jeff Bridges sleeping with Sybil Shepherd, but everybody wants to sleep with Sybil Shepherd, and then it's like the older people in the town sleeping with the younger people. Mm -hmm. It's like a coach's wife who's frustrated because the coach is probably gay. That's in the book, but they, they, they only kind of hint at it in the movie. Sure, but, and uh, the wife is played by... Um... Cloris Leachman, Leachman. And she starts having an affair with uh, Timothy Bottoms and uh, his character. She, was she nominated for an Oscar for that? Yes. Yeah, so many people in the cast nominated for Oscars. It's a real ensemble piece, as they say. That is true. And one of the people who uh, won the Oscar is uh, Ben Johnson. Do you know who Ben Johnson is, Seth? Let me just yes, put yes. you on the spot. He plays the old guy. He does, but, <laughs> but more than that, right. he was Sam the Lion in Last Picture. But more than that, he was a uh, cowboy. He was a rodeo star mm. who was an actor. So he's kind of like the rock of his day because he was... <laughs> Is that, I don't is know that insulting? That, that really tracks, but okay. But, but, you know, The Rock was a wrestler, and now he's an actor. Well, Ben Johnson was a rodeo guy, a cowboy, who oh. became an actor. So, like, Howard Hawks cast him in stuff. Howard Hughes. Oh, wow. All the big Howards. He was in this movie my uncle always used to show. It's called Mighty Joe Young. Do you know that movie? Just a little yeah, with side. Yeah, it's, like, not quite as big as King Kong, but right. pretty big ape. But it's like King Kong goes to Hollywood. <laughs> right, like, let's right. put a piano on Mighty Joe Young's head and, uh, and somebody will play it. You know, it's a really <laughs> wild movie. But my uncle was kind of obsessed with that movie. But Ben Johnson was the male lead in that in like oh, 1949. Wow. And so here it is, 1971. Mm -hmm. Peter Bogdanovich is looking for someone to cast. Mm -hmm. And again, and this is like the seeds of something like the way that uh, Quentin Tarantino revives all these people's careers uh, right you know i think we can find that in the dna here definitely why don't we uh listen to peter bogdanovich talk about how they cast ben johnson sounds good ben johnson 
I couldn't figure I couldn't figure out who to who to play that part. It was the key part, obviously. Right. And I, I didn't know I couldn't figure out who to use that. At one point, I thought Jimmy Stewart because I knew Jimmy a little bit. And I thought, I don't know. You go to the small town, dinky little town, and someone there's a big movie star, and mm -hmm. <laughs> didn't work. In my mind, I thought that's not going to work. So I couldn't figure out who the hell to use in that part. And one day I was looking through. The, I don't know if they still have it, but the Academy used to publish big, fat books of, of actors that are available, character actors, character women, whatever it was. And I was looking through the one on character men, and I came upon Ben Johnson's picture. I said, Ben Johnson. I had met him because we, we did a piece for Esquire about, about uh, John Ford, and I watched Ford making Cheyenne Autumn for three weeks in Monument Valley. That was in 63 or something. I met Ben Johnson at that point. So when I, when I saw his name again, I said, he'd be perfect. He's perfect. So then I couldn't think of anybody else possibly. I had to have Ben. He turned it down three times. I said, why don't you want to do it, Ben? Well, Pete, too many words. Too many <laughs> words, Pete. So I called Ford, whom I knew by now pretty well, and I said, you know, I got this great part for old Ben, but he says there's too many words. <laughs> and Ford says, Oh, Jesus, he always says that. When we did Yellow Ribbon, he came on the set, he said to the script girl, any words for me? And she, if she said yes, he'd sulk. And if she said no, <laughs> you just have to ride the horse, he'd be happy. Where is old Ben? I said, he's in Tucson. He said, let me call, I'll call him for you. Give me the number. I said, would you? He said, yeah, I'll call him for you. So he calls. About 10, 15 minutes later, I get a call from Ford. He says, he'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> He'll do it. I said, what, 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 really? He said, yeah. I told him, I said, what do you want to do? Be Duke sidekick, play side, Duke sidekick your whole life? <laughs> Peter's got a good part for you. Why don't you do it? He'll do it. About 10 minutes after that, the phone rings. It's Ben Johnson. Hi, Ben. Long pause. You put the old man on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just really want you to do this. Oh, Pete, I don't know. I don't know. He hadn't agreed to do it yet. So I said, why don't you come and see me? So he comes to my office about a week later, and, and he's sitting there, I'll never forget, he's sitting there with the script open, it, and he's like, he says, there's too many words, and some of this kind of dirty stuff, and I might want my mother to see it, and I don't know, Peter. I said, Ben, if you play this part, you could win the Oscar. He got, why the hell do you say that? I said, because <laughs> I think you could. You, in this part, could win the Oscar. Eventually, he said, he, I remember, he said, he had the script in front of him and he slammed it. Oh, all right, I'll do the goddamn thing. <laughs> and that's, what he, that's how he got him. And he won the Oscar. And he won the Oscar, yeah. I told Cloris she might win the Oscar, too. So that monologue he does by the water tank, yeah. was that straight out of the book? Did you write that? Or? Oh, no, I'll tell you, that's funny. The, in the book, there is a scene like that, but he doesn't say that. He says, he reminisces about this girl he used to go swimming with there. And his main reminiscence is that he used to go up on a, some kind of a place where he could get up and, and piss into the, <laughs> into the uh, tank dam. I said, Larry, that's not going to work. <laughs> I said, we had to come up with a different, different memory. And Larry wrote the what's there. He wrote it. I said, something romantic. And he wrote the thing about the horses and... I thought that was great. And that was not in the book. That's in the movie only. Old times. I brought a young lady swimming out here once. 
more than 20 years ago. It was after my wife had lost her mind my boys was dead. Me and this young lady was pretty wild, I guess. In pretty deep. We used to come out here horseback and go swimming without no bathing suits. One day she wanted to swim the horses across this tank. Kind of a crazy thing to do, but we'd done it anyway. She bet me a silver dollar she could beat me across. She did. This old horse I was riding didn't want to take the water. But she was always looking for something to do like that. Something wild. I bet she still got that silver dollar. So that's that's what the scene sounds like. Why don't you describe it visually a bit for the audience? Well, they're sitting by a little pond, a little man-made pond. Ben Johnson is telling a story to the young kids. And it's just so beautifully shot in the sun. It comes out from behind the clouds and it goes back in and everything. And it's just such a beautiful moment. And it's definitely the moment that won him the Oscar. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we we have the story of of how he um, cast Ben Johnson, this grizzled uh, veteran, kind of like uh, I don't know about The Rock, but I'm thinking more like Leo in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That there kind you go. of guy. Dip, 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 dip. Yes. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> when he can't remember his lines, you oh. know the scene where he's in the trailer oh, and he's, he's like, like hitting dip, his dip, head, dip, dip, dip. and he's hitting his head against the wall. Yeah. <laughs> So speaking of another actor, we've mentioned her quite a few times already. The uh, angel hovering above this entire production, Sybil Shepherd. Oh, Sybil. You may know her from Moonlighting, from her sitcom, from whatever she's up to now. But back then, she was a gorgeous, doe-eyed ingenue who That's really way to put it. captured his heart. And um, here's his story of how he discovered her. He plucked her from semi-obscurity. I went into a, a, a big Ralph's market or something. At one point, I was driving to the studio. And I stopped to get some toothpicks. I was trying to stop smoking. I was chewing toothpicks. So I went in, bought the, got the toothpicks, and I was waiting to check out. Then there's a magazine there, a Glamour magazine. I didn't even know such a magazine existed. but caught, It caught my eye, and Sybil was on the cover. And she was wearing a shirt in the photograph that had little I love you's all over it. I love you, I love you. And, but the look on her face belied the sentiment on the shirt. I didn't think she loved me. <laughs> she looked dangerous. She looked like she might love me, but I wasn't confident. So I bought the magazine and went to the office and told my assistant, to find this girl, find who she is. Turns out she'd been on the cover of Glamour nine times already. She was Sybil Shepherd. I thought C Y B I L L. I thought that's a bit much. <laughs> uh, but anyway, <laughs> she's from the South. <laughs> so we found out that it was Sybil Shepherd. She never made a movie. She won Model of the Year in 68. And this was now 70. And um, when I went to New York to cast, to do some casting, I asked to meet her. And she came over with her manager and it was at the Essex House Hotel, and, and she, I remember she came in wearing a jean jacket and a jean, jean, blue jeans, and she had very broad shoulders, tall girl, and I thought, Jesus, very attractive. And um, I, don't, I didn't have a read. I just talked to her. And at one point, oh, you know, you know when they serve you breakfast at, at, at the hotel or any meal, they usually have a small vase with a rose or something in it, right? And they did, they did with this. I just had breakfast. 
And Sybil, for some reason, sat on the floor in front of the coffee table, which I was sitting on the couch. The coffee table was here in front of me, and Sybil was in front of the coffee, <laughs> in front of the coffee table. And while she's talking to me, she's she's uh, I don't know how to show you, but she's 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 flicking flicking the rose, you know, like this back and forth like that. And I thought that's how she's going to handle guys off with their head. <laughs> and um, that gesture, that moment, which she did repeatedly through the conversation, made me feel she'd be perfect for this part. And luckily, I had read, or no, I, I had not read, I had been in, I'd interviewed George Cukor. And he told me why he had cast Kate Hepburn in, his, in her first movie, Bill of Divorce, which he directed. He cast her because he liked the way she put a cup of tea down on the floor. With her whole body, and I thought, that's that girl, that girl. <laughs> and I thought, oh, shit. So if, if he can cast her because he cast Kate Hepburn, if, if she, she put some goddamn tea down on the floor, I guess I can cast Sybil because she flicked the rose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess I may have undersold her a bit. She was on many covers of many magazines, so she wasn't quite plucked from obscurity, but Hollywood-wise, she was not uh, known. She was a model. Right, right. She wasn't an, an actor. And uh, he goes on to say that her read, when she did read for the producers, that she wasn't very good, but he knew he could get a good performance out of her. Just from the way she flicked the rose. She plays J.C., who is the town seducer, basically. She's yeah. Upper, kind of upper class. She's richer than uh, some of the boys she, she goes after. Yes, she's definitely the prize of the village, let's right. say. And so every, everybody wants to go out with her. And she completely just uses and chews and spits out boys and she's like kind of always on the lookout for the next best thing exactly and she is so great in that movie she yeah. was never better than in last picture show wow well maybe that's not something to say because she's great in moonlighting she was never younger yes she was never younger <laughs> than in 1971 she just kept getting older and right now she's the oldest that she's ever been hey that's not nice well so are you and <laughs> oh, so am that's i true. that's true all right, Jeff Bridges, moving right along. Yes, he's in this movie. You may have seen him in uh, Tron Legacy. I don't know why that's the <laughs> first that one that popped Tron in Legacy? Well, Big Lebowski. <laughs> Tron Legacy. Well, he was in it. <laughs> Starman? Uh, <laughs> although he was nominated for the Oscar for Starman, so that, that one's... Uh, all anyway, right. Well, he's been in Jeff many Bridges. Things. We all know and love Jeff Bridges. And he's also quite the little puppy in this movie. V very young. And very how, did, how did he get in this movie? Maybe Peter McDonovich had an <laughs> anecdote about that. The character that he plays is a mean, not a very likable character. But Jeff was so likable as a person. And I, I usually talk to the actors for about 20, 10, 15 minutes. And sometimes I read them, sometimes I don't. Jeff read for me, and he was very good. But I particularly liked his personality. He's very likable and very, just very likable. And I thought if we got a guy that's playing a who's likable playing a prick, it could be interesting mm -hmm. juxtaposition. And it was because you, you you sort of liked him even though he was didn't behave very well. That's how we cast Jeff. He got nominated for that. Why don't we just take off and go someplace? I'm sick and tired of this town. You're the only friend I got here. You mean go and stay gone? So JC, no, I don't know. Hey, we go to Mexico. Be back sometime Monday. You reckon to pick up and make it? Yeah, mind how much money you got? Oh, 30 bucks, about. Well, I got 40. We can make her on that. Come on. Okay. 
I mean, you could go down the cast list of this movie forever. I mean, next stop, Cloris Leachman. I mean, come on. She won an Oscar for this as well. Yeah, most people associate her with uh, Mel Brooks movies and comedies and stuff. But uh, she plays a, a pretty interesting, dark, tormented character who's sleeping with a teenager. Yeah. Kind of creepy. But she does a great job with it. Bob Rafelson uh, gave me a list of, of actresses that, he thought could play it. And it was about a list of 15 or 20 women, all about the same age, in their early 40s or something. And uh, Cloris came in. She had one of her children with her daughter. And she was absolutely wrong for the part in everything she did, except when she read. And she was very good on the reading. But in life, with her daughter, and she was frantic, absolutely wrong. But when she sat down and read the part, I said, this girl's great. And she can look good, and she can look plain. That's how she got cast. What am I doing apologizing to you? Why am I always apologizing to you, you little bastard? Three months I've been apologizing to you without you even being here. I haven't done anything wrong. Why can't I quit apologizing? You're the one who ought to be sorry. I wouldn't still be in my bathroom if it hadn't been for you. I had my clothes on hours ago. You're the one who made me quit caring if I got dressed or not. You want me to forget what you did and make it all right? I'm not sorry for you. You'd have left Billy too, just like you left me. I bet you left him plenty of nights. Whenever J.C. whistled. Ellen Burstyn was on the list that Bob gave me, and she came in and read for the waitress, for the, the mother, and for the other part, uh, uh, the uh, Clarice's part. She read for all three. I've never done this before or since. I said to her, you're so good. You decide what you want to play. Take it home. I want you in the picture. You decide which of the parts you want to play. And she came in. She said, I want to play the, the, the mother. I said, okay, you got it. And that was it. You slept with him? Mama. Well, go to the doctor sometime and arrange something so that you don't have to worry about babies. You do have to be careful of that. You know? But Mama, it's a sin, isn't it? Unless you're married, you know I wouldn't do that. <sighs> don't be so mealy man. I thought if you slept with him a few times, you might find out that there isn't anything magic about him. And we can send you away to a good school. But I don't want to leave. Wealthy boy. Why can't I just stay here and go to college in Wichita Falls? Because everything is flat and empty here. And nothing to do. For more about Ellen Burson, refer to our very first episode <laughs> with William Friedkin, where he goes in length about uh, Ellen Burson and how amazing she is. One thing I do love about how, as the show goes on, our show is is that there are a lot of like crossovers and names start to come up, and that you yeah. realize like what a tangled Kevin Bacon web Hollywood is. It's true. So they got the they have the cast. They're shooting this picture that's a dirty movie with teenagers down in Archer City, Texas, and mm-hmm. and then Sybil Shepherd is part of the. Uh, performance has to do with a nude scene yeah the pool scene and there's an interesting story on uh, how it came together and that kind of leads into how uh, director and star um, became more than friends or collaborators i'm curious about the uh the skinny dipping scene was that a challenging scene to uh... very yeah very First of all, we had to find a pool, indoor pool, which was not easy. We found one. It was some kind of a spa or something. And then we had to get some kids that would take off their, all their clothes and 
there was nobody there in, in the town that we could ask. And so we imported a couple of girls, a couple of women, I think, who agreed to take all their clothes off. And it was very carefully done, all that, because I didn't want to have a lot of nudity. As it turns out, we had to measure it at some point. We had only seven seconds of nudity in the whole picture. But it gave the impression of being more than that, and it was sort of raunchy. And I remember John Wayne saw the picture when it was finished, and he says, I can't show that picture to my family, Pete. <laughs> Why, Duke? Well, all that nudity. Was it hard for Sybil to perform that? Was it as hard as it looked for her character? Yeah. But I cleared the set. There was nobody there mm-hmm. when we shot her stuff. Just me and the cameraman and the sound guy. That helped her. We weren't sure if she was going to do that scene. I mean, if she was going to allow us to do the nudity. She kept saying, I'll, I'll try. I said, anyway, we didn't know if she was going to do it until she did it. And it's, she, she was very good. And she was scared. So she played right into it. I, the t- funny thing is I was scared because by now I was kind of in love with her. <laughs> and I knew it was tough for her. So I was... It was tougher for me to let her do it. I don't know. It's weird. So you, you fell in love with her over the, sh- over the sh- course of the shoot? Yeah. And how did that complicate your life? A lot. <laughs> it still is. <laughs> <laughs> the reverberations last a long time. What happened was we were getting ready to shoot the scene in the, in the movie theater when she was, when we first meet her. And she was sitting in a row here, and I was sitting in a row behind her, but we were, she's turned around, we were talking. And I said something like, I don't know who I want to sleep with more, you or JC. JC is the character she was playing. She turned absolutely red. And the AD comes over and says, okay, we're ready for your shot, Sybil. Her opening line, what are you all doing back here in the dark? What are you two doing there? And I thought, I've just fucked it up, because now she's going to be thrown. But she didn't. She did it fine. And um, I don't know, it led to uh, seven or eight years together. We were, changed my life. You were, you were married at the time? Oh, yeah. Polly was there on the set. She was the production designer. Mm. But, I mean, you still ended up doing a couple more movies with Yeah, I Polly, did, yeah. So I, got her, I got her into the union. It's um, very 70s of you, I guess. To... <laughs> I don't know what it was, but it, it was a nightmare in a way. Oh, man. It was, it was okay on What's Up Doc, but on Paper Moon it was tough. Did you ever repair your relationship with Polly? Sort of. We stayed in touch because of my daughters. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it reverberates. She died about five or six years ago. But it, it was not easy. It wasn't easy at all. So what was probably happening there with me was uh, nervous laughter, I think, a little bit, because he was... <laughs> Was getting a little deep. Well, on you know, stuff. We, and, and you know, you want to have a good interview, but you also don't want to pry. Into... No, I do. Oh well, yeah, you're a journalist. <laughs> well, I like right. to get up close and personal with yeah. our guests. I find it often illuminates a lot. He was willing to talk. He was game, but also a little guarded. But I, I understand why. All right, let's get back onto the movie track. So he's finished the film, and um, it's set to premiere at the New York Film Festival. He's already working on his next film, What's Up Doc, with Barbara Streisand. 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 <laughs> and he couldn't even attend the premiere of his own movie. But uh, it uh, got a great reception, and people started talking about it. Right, and he became the hot new director, the enfant terrible. 
Because he was really, he's only like 30 years old when all this happens. Roman Aclef, Ensemble, Enfant Terrible. <laughs> this is like we have, a, we have a very uh, ardent fa- a French fan base. That's why, that's why I do all that. Hi, Paris. Oh. I remember I was shooting What's Up Doc and I was in my dressing room and the phone rings and it's Bert Schneider. He says, Are you sitting down? I said, uh, Okay, I am now. He said, here's the opening line from the Newsweek review. The last picture show in a very, whatever, this is a paraphrase, in a rather dreary season of films, is not only the best film of the year, but the best film by a new director since Citizen Kane. Wow. I said, holy shit, really? <laughs> knock on the door. OK, Peter, we're ready for you. <laughs> I said, I must be pretty good. I mean. <laughs> and we went and shot the. The banquet scene in What's Up, Doc. Well, what did your film heroes think of it, the ones that you'd interviewed? Um, well, Howard liked it. I remember because he made that comment about staying in one place. He didn't say much else. No, none of them said much. Ford, I don't think he saw it. Huh. Hitch saw it, and I mean, he invited me to, to see a, a, a screening of, I think it was Frenzy, and I sat next to him. And then he went up on the stage and was asked questions. They said to Mr. Hitchcock, they said, have you, do you, any film, current films that you like? Well, he said, I saw the last movie show <laughs> and What's Up, Doc? And everybody knew I was there, so they laughed and applauded. And that's, that's why I don't know if he saw it or not. He got the title <laughs> wrong. That's all he said? Yeah. <laughs> Can I just say that I love all his impressions, too? Like, mm-hmm. I don't think we've ever had a guest that goes into as many impressions. Well, Harry as... Hamlin did a good job, too. Oh, right, of, like, Laurence Olivier? He did all kinds of impressions, but, yeah, no, Bogdanovich does them, too. Why don't we get uh, Harry and Peter in a show where they just do impressions? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So he makes this movie, he's on top of the world, and then... You get a little backlash. This seems like what always happens in Hollywood. Of course. Speaking of it happened in Hollywood. Flying too close to the sun. Another legend that Peter was friends with is Cary Grant. And so he had a little talk about this backlash with Cary Grant. Cary Grant calls me up and he says, Peter, will you for Christ's sake stop telling people you're happy and stop telling me you're in love? Why, Cary? Because they're not happy and they're not in love. (laughs) I thought all the world loves a lover. No, don't you believe it. Let me tell you something, Peter. People do not like beautiful people. And uh, I've told that story in front of audiences. And the first time I told it, I would tell it just like I told it here. And it would get a laugh on every single line except the last one. People do not like beautiful people. No laugh. I thought, that's interesting. I wonder why. I did it a couple more times, no laugh. So I thought... They feel implicated in that sentence. And that's why they're not laughing. And so I stopped telling that last sentence. Being a show business guy, you know. (laughs) Always leave him laughing. He left us laughing the whole time, actually. Yeah, out of nervousness. (laughs) Well, yeah, but also because his impressions are so good. Yeah, he's funny, but it's also scary. Well, yeah, because they're like, oh, man, there's this 80-year-old legend right here. It really is kind of like, are we upsetting you? (laughs) Or, you know, it's like you don't want to walking on eggshells. A lot of heavy sighing. Yes, exactly. And it could just be he's tired or, you know, who knows? I mean, everybody's human. I did ask him about his famous ascot. Which is, you know, very recognizable. He always has it. And it turns out it's not an ascot at all. It's a bandana. 
and he started wearing it on the set of this movie. Wow. Country Western. So that's he, pretty he awesome. Wear an ascot. I love that answer. It's a bandana. <laughs> what do we? He does impressions. Why do we do an impression of uh, Peter McDonough? Amazing stories, and I, I don't think we'll ever have better names in an episode than this one. I mean, who oh didn't he name? I know, right? Well, you know, we are a historical show, and so that's this was a treat because you know he's such a tie to, like you said, this uh, bygone era of Hollywood. And uh, he's still around, and he came to see us. And so uh, let's say goodbye. Why don't we leave on this interesting nugget of wisdom from Bogdanovich, and that's on the true nature of, of directing. And if anyone would know, it's him. I asked Ford about something in one of his pictures. He says, oh, that's just an accident. Most of the good things in pictures happen by accident, he says. I said, really? I, I'd only made targets by then. I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> So I said to Wells, I repeated the comment to Orson, and I said, is that true? And Orson says, yes. Yes, you could even say that a director is a man who presides over accidents. Yes, in the same way he was presiding over this podcast. Which is a bit of an accident. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) This week. No, no, we loved this interview. I, I couldn't believe This is one of the best things that's ever happened to me since I've lived in town well you deserve it after what you went through with your eye chip oh well thank you that's that's very (laughs) sweet of you to say so a huge thank you to peter bogdanovich for coming in we are not worthy yeah totally we'll take it yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) and thanks again for tuning in we hope you're having a lot of fun on the second season we're having a lot of fun we love the weekly rollout we have so many good interviews coming up, too. Yeah, we maybe we won't spill all the names, but we have some major big names coming, and they did not disappoint. Yes, big names, interesting people, legends. And um, until next time, we'll see you in Hollywood. Hollywood.